This is our final episode of Insurance Uncut for season one. And we're going to be doing a wrap up of all the episodes we have done, taking a look back and giving you an update on all the insightful conversations that we have had. However, we couldn't start this week's episode without acknowledging the war in Ukraine and the massive impact that this is going to have. And I think we've wrestled with this quite a lot. What should we be saying about Ukraine? And clearly the human aspect is by far the most important. Equally, those of us working in the insurance industry are going to have to start getting our heads around some of the practical implications, both short term and long term. And so very acutely aware that this is ultimately a human issue. But we will talk to an extent today about some of what we see people doing in the market and what might be appropriate and constructive responses in various arenas. I guess every time I hear the news now, it just feels so desperately sad and thoughts are with those that are struggling through this. And it's quite telling that, for example, a lot of public debate and thought in the last few months prior to this crisis was about climate change. And then, of course, for around two years prior to that, the absolutely dominant area of public discussion and daily life was COVID. It does feel like the world's becoming a more uncertain place. There are huge issues that will come up kind of out of left field every year. And there was never any doubt there'd be something in 22. You just couldn't predict what it would be. Absolutely right. So I guess on that slightly sombre note, we'll kick off with this week's episode. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions. So please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Sean, this is the first one where it's just going to be us. There's no guest this week. Listeners will be forced to hear us talk for 20 to 30 minutes. Do we actually have interesting things to say? I think fortunately, because of the wonderful people that we have met over this season, we've got plenty of interesting stuff to look back and reflect upon. And I'd say most of the issues that we covered with our guests in the season have had further developments and there's plenty of interesting aspects that are worth considering today as we look back. Yeah, and I wanted to kick us off by taking us right back to the beginning and our first episode that we did with Stuart Mitchell on kind of ESG issues, particularly on the kind of climate change side, which is an area I'm personally and professionally also very interested in. Since recording with Stuart, we obviously had COP26. What was your kind of takeaway from that, Charles? Did you come away feeling energised and yet the world's going to become a better place or concerned and demoralised? I felt slightly deflated by COP26, but I suppose these events do tend to get built up a lot. And I suppose probably the thing that strikes me is that just when we're trying to get the world working together more effectively to tackle climate change, so many other forces in the world are pushing nations apart. So much of the globalization trends that we've all benefited from in the last few decades seem to be being unwound before our eyes. 
So it's not a great environment at the moment for wrangling the many nations of the world together in a common cause. I think we saw a lot of commitments and people signing up to deals to some extent, I think, in an ideal where they'd have gone a bit further. And I think that's why we're having another COP this year, so COP27 in Egypt. But I think a lot of businesses in particular, and obviously individuals, were looking for governments to be taking a real strong stance on this to help provide clarity. And I think that's probably what hasn't happened. I think people said a lot of things at COP, but actually off the back of that, things have still been potentially a bit grey and no kind of clear messages on when things are happening immediately. And I think that's not really helping businesses plan and know when things are happening. For example, still investing in fossil fuels and do they still underwrite projects, things like that. Those key questions for insurers are still, there's not been a clear steer from the government necessarily on these topics. It's still being left to essentially the individual companies to make those calls. What I think we could do with more of is open public debate about the fact that although we probably mostly agree that we need to move beyond dependency on fossil fuels, day to day, we absolutely need them at the moment. The world can't function without them. And so on the one hand, we need to have enough impetus to move beyond them, but we also can't necessarily demonize those who are helping to deliver a product that effectively all of us are demanding day by day. And so we need to find a way to recognize that where we are at the moment is not ideal, but that that's got to be the starting point for the future. And I think one of the examples that Stuart touched upon a couple of times was the Carmichael project in Australia. So I think at the time it was very much struggling to get insurance to cover it. It has since now found an insurance provider. It is not saying who that is, but it does have cover for the project. So it is going ahead. The Carmichael project is a mine project that's happening in Queensland, Australia. And I think that's a prime example of, was this the right thing to do? But people maybe are taking advantage of the fact that I'm sure that the premium for that insurance was much higher, given that was limited demand to write the policy. And in the same way, you've got various companies divesting from fossil fuels companies, for example, probably can make quite some quite good returns on it. So it's becoming those that are trying to do the right thing are going to be hit in multiple different ways, possibly. I think that's true. We kind of always envisaged that there would be some insurers who would pursue profit and take the view that if government's not telling them that they may not insure something, then it's a valid opportunity. Equally, there are some big name insurers across the world who are making increasingly genuine and strong commitments to move beyond insuring some of the more polluting industries. So that's been really positive to see. Definitely. Another episode, episode seven that we did with Graham, we touched on climate modelling and what we could learn from all our pensions colleagues who are kind of ahead of the game in this space are doing. And I guess we also ran last year kind of a survey, a market survey on what insurers are doing on climate change. And I have to say the gap between those two positions is quite a stark one. I think insurers are starting to do modelling and analysis on climate change. In particular, they're starting to develop some long-term scenarios, but at the moment, it's very kind of qualitative analysis. There's only a handful of firms that are really doing kind of detailed modelling on this in order to try and understand the exposure. And maybe that was fine, I think, last year, but ahead of the PRA's supervisory statement deadline. But I think going forward, that will no longer be seen as suitable. And data is out there. It is just really hard and confusing to get your head around. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting developments in that space over the next year. I've been hugely encouraged by some of the conversations that we've had with climate change modelers. 
These are usually people outside the insurance industry, and they're not necessarily thinking about climate change modeling from an insurance perspective. But it's been refreshing to see the way that they think. An example I keep coming back to is an expert that we spoke to. We were talking about natural catastrophe risk. And what they really wanted to talk about is population movements, which they thought would be the key driver of where catastrophe risks actually cost money. And it makes so much sense thinking about it that way. And of course, just thinking now we've got a million people moving across Europe out of Ukraine, population movements is definitely an area that would benefit from further thinking and better quality modeling. Just one example of where I think the difficulty in climate change modeling data makes us cast the net wider, speak to experts in wider areas and learn quite a lot as a result. Yeah, and I guess it's also people moving to areas where maybe previously it wouldn't have been categorized as a catastrophe event because there was nothing or very little there. But because of other factors, they're being driven there or just population growth means that we're potentially inhabiting these places more. The risk just keeps going up. And I think we also did a wrap up of the cats that have happened this year. And obviously with Richard in episode eight, and obviously since then, we've had two massive storms, Storm Eunice, in particular here in the UK, which are going to cause massive damage and cost I think current estimates around 3 billion potentially. So it does show that these events are continuing to come and will it also impact us here in the UK? I think sometimes we do think of them as very American hurricanes like Florida season. That's right. Yeah. They are. One of the things I feel encouraged by is because of climate change and because climate change modeling experts tend to be from outside the insurance industry, one of the great opportunities that presents is a second opinion that can be helpful as a sort of validation and challenge on some of the industry standard catastrophe modeling methods that people use. And many of us in the industry have been concerned for some years that the international insurance markets are very reliant on only sort of two or three main modeling platforms. And high quality though they may be, they could definitely benefit from wider challenge. So I feel like we're actually got a chance of getting that better challenge now on the back of some climate change problems that people need to solve. I think also a lot of those models, they don't focus on not necessarily all catastrophe events. So there are some that just kind of aren't covered that will probably grow in prevalence depending on how the world decides to change. And then also all the kind of secondary impacts and indirect impacts that are going to come from this that are definitely as a result of climate change, but they won't be captured in a cat model necessarily, but kind of climate change modeling will allow for all of them. So there's things like transition risk, talking about the population, movements, all that kind of stuff will be more accurately captured by climate modeling specifically. And actually one of the climate related comments that really resonated with me in season one was a chat that wasn't about climate change at all, but we spoke to Tom Clementi, the former CEO of MS Amlin, And one of the points that he made was that although climate change risk is an absolutely crucial area for insurers to understand and manage, insurers should also be aware of the opportunities that might arise on the back of those risks. For example, providing much needed catastrophe cover in different areas from what might have been the case historically. Basically, I thought that was a very refreshing approach and that as an insurer, you do need to be alert to the emerging needs in markets you may not have served in the past and places where quite appropriately you could go in and provide a solution and make a profit. Absolutely. I think with every risk comes an opportunity. And actually, I think you'll find you'll get a lot more engagement with people if you talk about the opportunities rather than just focusing on the risks. I do think in terms of boards, 
really getting to grips and understanding climate change and under the different future worlds that we may end up in, what that could mean for their business and their balance sheet impacts and then being able to make good strategic decisions off the back of that rather than kind of gut feels necessarily. And that's something that we're definitely seeing, isn't it? That the strategy and the process of coming up with your strategy and your business plan is becoming somewhat more scientific in the insurance world. Traditionally, certainly in the London market and many other markets, insurers' strategies were very based on gut feel. Having met with over 20 insurers to talk about how they do underwriting strategy in the last few months, I've noticed that there's been a real shift towards putting more science behind strategy which is very positive. And I think it's going to be essential for insurers to remain competitive. I think it really ties in nicely with some of the comments that Zoe made on the kind of behavioral biases and like a way to help ensure that your conversations are informed and that you're kind of removing biases as much as possible at board level, for example, when you're setting strategy is to make sure you've got some kind of numbers or backing or something to challenge or something to work around. I think that will only help strengthen those conversations and help to remove bias. I agree. I had a good example this morning because we've just had our regular CRO round table and we asked the group some questions about the role of the risk function in challenging the business plan and the strategy and in particular challenging the business's ability to deliver the plan. And the response we had was really positive. Most risk function feel like it is a part of their job to challenge cases where they feel the business is ill-equipped to deliver its strategy. They feel they're able to have those difficult conversations and provide that challenge. And if that's happening, much more likely that the board will be able to make an informed decision because it will be getting a balanced point of view. I think that comes really nicely to a theme that's been an undercurrent in several of our episodes, actually. So I think Mike touched upon this in episode nine, which was kind of looking at risk across 2022. And Tom definitely brought it out as well, was the culture of firms. Having that culture where individuals feel that they can raise potentially controversial points and have an open, honest conversation about it is, I think, such an important tool requirement for firms now. Because if you don't have that open, supportive culture, then you have got massive risk. And actually, there was a time when within insurers, we discussed the concept of risk culture And it made sense in certain arenas, but not necessarily in others. For example, it may still have been very difficult to challenge some of the senior people if you thought that what they were doing was not good for the firm. I think we've seen that change pretty radically. And a lot of CEOs in the market now are getting very real about inviting challenge, inviting the voice of dissent on the basis that it's going to give rise to better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also so important just linking back in probably with climate change and wider social issues as well, that you have a good culture at a firm that's supportive. I think it will help your retention. It will help morale. It's such a crucial part of day-to-day working that, that having a clear, defined culture that you understand and you've got the buy-in. Talking about boards and decision-making and what's on the board's mind, last week we had a roundtable of insurance NEDs and we asked them about some of the issues that are on their minds and what's worrying them at the moment. Do you want to have a guess what was right at the top of the list by an absolute mile? I think it's on the top of every single person in the insurance industry's mind at the moment, and that's inflation. Absolutely. Even compared to the level of concern that I think we were all feeling three, four months ago, things have got worse. 
And sadly, what we're seeing happening in the Ukraine and especially the international community's response in terms of sanctions against Russia probably is only going to intensify inflationary pressures because it will further intensify sort of disconnects of supply and demand and supply chains are going to be more disrupted. So a lot of the things that have been driving higher inflation are going to get worse. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no skirting the issue. We were actually discussing yesterday, Sean, on a client, weren't we, about the kind of few key decisions and questions for insurers around this is how high is it going to go? How long is it going to stay there? And when we come out the other side of this, if we do, what's the new normal? Are we going to come back to something near where we are or where we were maybe a few months ago? Or are we in a completely different space? Yeah, I agree. And that's a very helpful framework for thinking about it. Within that framework, I think a lot of people I was speaking to a couple of months ago felt that the hump is probably only going to last one or two years. I'm hearing that a lot less now. Also, a couple of months ago, people weren't really thinking very hard about what the new normal was, almost an implicit assumption that the new normal would be the old normal. But the old normal was very unusual by historical standards. We've had artificially low and unusual inflation rates and interest rates now for 12, 13 years. It's probably not a good basis for projection into the future. I know. I think Ed, in episode four, where we discussed inflation and everything, I think he had a few really helpful tips in terms of it is more important now than ever to kind of be getting a real grasp on what inflation have you got and how is that going to massively change to what you've got going forward so you can be properly allowing for it and understanding it. It's not easy. I can absolutely 100% attest that it's not easy to try and understand. (laughs) You've been running the numbers and they're very hard to interpret, aren't they? They are. But I think, like we've been saying to people on climate change, the best start is to do something and to be taking steps forward and pulling together lots of different data to try and get something. And it's not going to be right, but it's not zero. As we were saying, it's not zero. It's definitely something. So can't just ignore it anymore. (laughs) Exactly. You've touched on something there that I definitely wanted to mention today, which is the role of the actuary in a much more uncertain world. And I feel like right now our actuarial skills are being tested in a way that hasn't been the case for many years, because the things that are going to drive the liabilities and the risks and the investment returns that we're trying to predict and project and manage All of those drivers, there's no good historical data on them. So, for example, the inflation that we're worried about, if you look at recent experience, you won't see it in the data because COVID meant that the inflation was all over the place and very low in some cases. Equally, the issues we're dealing with with climate change, good luck trying to find historical evidence to project forward on climate change. It's very, very hard. And again, the likely sort of knock-on impacts we're going to see from global political tensions, again, there's not a good precedent for that in any recent history. So we're really going to have to start doing what one actuary said a few years ago, and I think it's always resonated with me, is doing your actuarial work or, let's say, reserving by looking out the window rather than by looking at the past data. What's happening out the window is much more important than what's happening in the historical triangles. Yeah, definitely. And actually, on that front, Nitesh, in the fantastic episode where he was talking about his career, and specifically a career as an actuary, he was touching on some of the attributes that you need in order to be able to cope with changing landscapes as an actuary, wasn't he? Yeah, very much so. I think one of the key things he pulled out was around that kind of curiosity, the ability to kind of dive in. It was a great episode. Something I actually personally took away from that was 
looking back on your successes and really remembering what it is that you've done well or, or you can do good and really focusing on that as well as focusing on that key tool to help you grow in your That's career. Right. And I think we touched on culture earlier and actuarial teams are not immune from some of the cultural challenges that exist in the wider insurance firm. For example, most actuarial teams that we speak to would probably say they're a bit overstretched. And when they are overstretched, the tasks that tend to suffer will be the apparently non-essential tasks, but quite important tasks of looking at the future, improving methodologies, thinking about risks that have been underexplored, because there's still the day job and there's all the compliance work still to get through. And I think Ed, who we spoke to in episode 10 on the role of ILSs in the kind of insurance market, that's kind of, I think, a key example. He talked a bit about how some firms aren't using ILSs and potentially that might be a good opportunity for them or something they might want to consider in the future, but they probably just don't have the time capacity to look into this option properly. And the reason this also caught my attention is this week, the IPCC report, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report came out this week. And one of the things I mentioned in there was catastrophe bonds being a useful tool to help firms to adapt to the changing world that climate change might bring. And so again, it's a prime opportunity for maybe it's not right for you right now, but if you've not explored the option, you've not kind of done the thinking, it's not the traditional reinsurance that might be used to, then when that moment arrives, you might not be ready to kind of take that up. Yeah, it's absolutely true. So another thing I wanted to talk about is machine learning. And it's been very exciting to see machine learning starting to be used in some very practical ways in, for example, how insurers do their reserving by applying more advanced techniques to interpret, difficult to interpret historical data. I'm going to challenge you, Sharma, to see how you cope with the pressure that we put all our guests (laughs) under. I mean, it's not. I feel like we're always very nice to our guests, hopefully. We were talking about a few minutes ago how the past pretty much doesn't equal the future anymore. And past data just is reliable. We've got to look out the window. How does that work with machine learning? (laughs) I think that's a very good challenge. It is true, isn't it, that the recent historical claims experience is just so disrupted by COVID and other factors that how on earth are you going to divine a trend out of that? And even if you did, the trend's probably wrong because the world has changed. I suppose it doesn't change the fact that insurers have got to find a way of justifying their liabilities and their capital numbers with a certain amount of reference to historical data. But perhaps the bigger role is as we start accumulating data in some sort of a new normal, a post-COVID, a post-climate change, post-deglobalization type world, machine learning will at least hopefully enable us to get as much value out of sparse and inconclusive data as possible. That might be the way forward. And actually, to that point, a lot of the work that we're doing with clients at the moment is putting in place more monitoring mechanisms, monitoring inflation monitoring, strategy, execution, all sorts of things. And again, machine learning, I hope, can offer some value in that area. It's a jolly good challenge though, isn't it? I think that's actually the really key point that you've got the stage and you're going to continue to collect it and it's spotting those trends quickly. When do we need to react to something? When is it going beyond what we've expected? In order to know how the future is going to change, you probably also need to have a really good understanding of what you did have. So that will be a key area also I think where machine learning will come in to play I really enjoyed that episode with Charlie and something else that he said during it was also to focus on the problem that you want to solve not just the technology 
machine learning might not always be the right solution. It might form part of a solution, but it might not be the whole thing. And I think that's something that, I mean, I think tech can really help in many things that we do and help us move away from maybe some Excel spreadsheets, particularly oh, maybe in yeah, the day absolutely. job, or just personal life and stuff. But the focus should really be on what's the problem, not what can the tech do. I think that's right. To kind of help drive the solution. And actually, one of the problems is a very human one, which is that, like we were saying, actuarial teams are overstretched. And so if technology can free up that team to spend more time adding value to the business and less time wrestling with spreadsheets and numbers, that's hugely valuable. God, it's been a great season, hasn't it? It's been amazing. And I'm very excited about season two. We're not going to reveal too much about what's involved, but I think there is so much to talk about. The world only gets more and more uncertain and actually quite scary in places and insurers and those working for them need to be equipped to respond. So there can be plenty of interesting stuff to talk about, no doubt. Yeah, so we're going to just take a short break. So we're only going to be gone for a month and then we'll be right back with you with season two. So yeah, I guess if there is any topic you want us to cover in particular, then do get in touch with either of us and we'd be super happy to take recommendations and discuss things that you would find really useful. Yeah, that's great. And in particular, I mean, we know the ILS episode that we did last season was specifically a recommendation from a listener. So I think that's just excellent. And it demonstrates that if you do give us an idea, we'll almost <laughs> certainly act on it. Definitely. So I feel we're coming to the end of the episode, Charles. And this is normally where oh. we ask our guests to give us some recommendations of what they've been watching, listening or reading recently. So... I feel it's only fair if we both give a recommendation on what we've been enjoying. This you feels like first. pressure now. Yeah. Okay. These are totally non-work related recommendations, I'm afraid. The first thing is that I'm just absolutely desperately looking forward to the new Red Hot Chili Peppers album. And there's only one oh. track being released so far. I've listened it to death and I really need the other ones to appear on my phone now. The other thing that I have really enjoyed recently is the TV series Euphoria, which is in oh, its okay. second season. It's a sort of high school drama, but it's very real, very edgy. Some of it quite difficult to watch. But as somebody who's got two teenagers, I think a lot of it rings very true and just amazing filmmaking as well. Now, what about you, Jess? I think mine's like part work, part not. It kind of Ooh. sits in the middle. Yeah. So it's a series that was called Dope Sick. It was on, well, I saw it through Disney Plus, which you think, oh, that's a very odd thing to be watching something called Dope Sick. What's that? It's basically a series about the opioid crisis in the US. So it's kind of a dramatized series, but I think it draws a lot upon what has really been happening out there. And kind of in particular, the Suckler family and their role that they've played in all this. But it's just so well done. It's really gripping. Only eight episodes. But yeah, really interesting. Well, there we are. Well done, Jess. End of season one. <laughs> I'm so excited. I can't wait to come back with season two in four weeks time. Yeah, it's been great fun. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. 
All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.